me pray as we begin. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'll have you stand as you're able for the reading of scripture this morning. It is uh, from Luke. I'm going to get to it. Hold on. Here we go. There it is. Luke 5, 1 through 11. Um, It would be appropriate. I see some of you have your Bibles out. Way to go. Uh, It would be appropriate to have this open in your Bible. There's red pew Bibles around you because uh, I'm going to read this. I'm going to invite you to listen well to it. And then we're going to go. We're going to go into this passage. We're going to go deep into it. Um, So I would invite you to make sure that you are ridding yourself of distractions to hear what God has to say for us as we dive into this wonderful text today. Luke 5, 1 through 11. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and he asked him to put it out a little from shore. Then he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees. And he said, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And then Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. You can be seated. Uh, This amazing passage is... uh, often called the first miraculous catch of fish. Yes, there is a second one. It's in the Gospel of John. Um, Or some call it the calling of St. Peter, the calling of Peter. Jesus teaches on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He does an incredible miracle with these fish, and then he invites Peter to follow him. It's a rich passage for us today. Um, I'm realizing something about Peter as we continue in this character study during the season of Lent on Simon Peter. Uh, Here's what I'm realizing. The gospel writers are using him very intentionally as something of an avatar or an ensign or even maybe a totem. Um, He is representing something larger than I think he actually did when he was walking and talking with Jesus. I think... Uh, what I see is the whole discipleship experience of anyone who wants to follow Jesus seems to funnel through this character of Peter, certainly more than any of the other disciples. So when we read an interaction between Jesus and Peter, there's 
I, I think there's almost always an invitation for us to place ourselves in that narrative in the place of Peter. There's no question about that when you read this in this passage. Like last week, we were invited to let Jesus see us. What does it mean for Jesus to see us just as he saw Peter? And boy, does this text have some incredible invitations for us. In fact, I'm so confident that there are multiple invitations happening in this incredible text that I'm going to let you choose your own adventure this morning by offering uh, a couple of different invitations. Uh, These are interpretive invitations from Jesus and letting you decide which one speaks to you and your life today. But before I get to those invitations, I do want to dive into this text. Um, There are five things about this text that you may have missed when you were hearing it or reading it. Um, that I think you need to understand to understand the importance of this text and the full weight of Jesus' invitation in it. Ready to go? Five things um, about this text. First thing is that fishermen work at night. That's still true. Um, Peter tells Jesus that they've, um, they've been working hard all night and they haven't caught anything. This was the regular practice, to fish all night. Uh, last time I was in Israel, um, by the way, if you want to come and talk to me, June 2024, we're going again. Would love to have you join me. You can see this too. Um, Last time I was in Israel in our hotel room in Tiberias. That's on the west bank of the um, Sea of Galilee. Uh, Our our hotel room was looking east over the water. And um, I was going to bed late one evening. Maybe I'd gotten up in the middle of the night. I can't remember. But I looked out of the window and I saw dotted dotted lights all over the lake. Still today, they fish at night. Because that's the time when you are most likely to yield the most fish. Um, Peter and Andrew uh, would have used these large weighted nets. They were made of flax or maybe linen, um, which fish could see pretty clearly during the day uh, and avoid them. But at night, they couldn't really see them, and they were much more likely to swim into those nets and get caught into them. Fish are also way more active at night. Those of you who fish, you know that's true. Uh, But that doesn't mean that it's easy work for these fishermen to fish at night. It's not like they're just pulling in stuff all the time. These fishermen... Um, didn't have to contend with the scorching sun during the day, but they worked really, really hard at night. Um, They were likely using what what are called trammel nets, which are like a three-walled series of of, of nets that fish would swim into, and they get more narrow as they swim into them, and, and as they find themselves in the middle, they get trapped inside of them. And then one of the fishermen would have to jump out of the boat to go and retrieve that inner net with all the fish inside of it, throw it into the boat from the water, and then go out and get the other nets, go back into the boat, and then find a new location and set them all out again. All night long, casting, swimming, hauling, in and out of the boat. They worked very, very hard, and they worked all night long. Second thing I want you to know is cleaning nets is really hard work. It's really hard work. When Jesus encounters the disciples in this text after their long night of hard work, they are on the shore cleaning their nets, which was a crucial aspect of being a fisherman, and it actually required uh, quite a bit of skill uh, to clean your nets. They were not simply rinsing their nets in the way that we might think about it. They would have to remove debris from those nets. They'd have to to set them all out and remove debris from them. Any, uh, uh, they'd have to thoroughly clean them from any living thing that was in them. They had to mend nets, which were regularly frayed um, or torn by rocks uh, or, or a particularly aggressive fish. So these linen nets, if not properly cleaned and dried, would mold and they would rot and they would be useless. So cleaning the nets was crucially important and it was a lengthy involved process because 
obviously if the nets are, are fraying, if they have holes in them, if they are rotted, they're of no use when you go and use them tomorrow. So if these fishermen didn't clean and mend those nets after each night of work, then they wouldn't be able to continue in their business. Their business would be done. We're going to come back to that. Just know that cleaning nets um, was also hard work. Third thing, um, we might think of this as just sort of a hobby or an independent small business. This was not that uh, for, for Peter. Fishing um, is not the free enterprise that we might think of. Uh, it was part of a state-regulated profiting scheme, <laughs> really. Herod Antipas is the one who governed the area of Galilee, and, and as the district ruler, he was actually more of a, of a territorial sort of puppet prince. He was appointed by Rome, and thus he controlled the territory's roads and the harbors and the natural resources, things like mines and forests and agriculture, and, you guessed it, fisheries. He owned those um, and controlled them. And they were a major tax revenue for Herod. He also had a complete monopoly over the exploitation of inland waters. So there's evidence from the first and second centuries that taxes in Palestine, in the Galilee region, were often paid in kind uh, rather than in cash. So basically you would come in from your hall and some fishermen, uh, they, they think, probably gave about 40% of their catch directly um, to an official when they came in off the shore. Fishing police made sure that nobody was fishing unauthorized, um, that fishermen sold their catch to only authorized middlemen or wholesalers who were Roman officials. What does this all mean? Um, this all means that these men were very aware that nearly half of what they were going to catch belonged to Herod before they even got it on the shore. They were aware that they were essentially employees of Herod before they saw any profit of their own. They were fishing for Herod. <laughs> they were fishing for Rome. Okay, fourth thing I want you to know is when Jesus says you're going to become a fisher of men, I'm going to teach you to fish for people, that's a complex metaphor. Um, after the miraculous catch of fish, this is what Jesus says. He invites Peter and Andrew to follow him and says, I'll make you fishers of people. I'll make you fishers of men. Um, I had always understood this primarily as a, as a way of speaking about evangelism, right? That, that Peter would, would reel in a bunch of converts to the way of Jesus. And while this may be true, and Peter did do that, um, it's only at best part of what Jesus is getting at in this imagery. Um, teachers were very common in first century Judaism. They were called rabbis. Uh, it's the Jewish word for teacher, uh, Hebrew word for teacher. Jesus was known as a rabbi because he amassed followers and was gifted in his interpretation of the Old Testament law. Rabbis were revered and they were honored and especially uh, the ones who had the most compelling messages, those most compelling teachers were the ones who were revered. And there was a common phrase, get this, there was a common phrase for rabbis in the first century who were particularly good teachers. They would say, that rabbi has their hooks in people, has their hooks in people. They would use great teaching to, to fish for crowds of people who would be compelled by what they had to say. I am certain that this was in Jesus' mind when he told Peter that he would fish for people. Coming back to that in a little bit. Fifth thing that I want you to know. Jesus using a boat was a sign that he was becoming a notable rabbi himself. Um, Jesus uses one of the vacant boats to be able to teach to the people on the seashore. This was because the crowds had apparently gotten big enough 
that it was harder for him to teach them. He couldn't just sit around a circle and talk with them anymore. He actually gets in the boat and he sets out a little bit from shore so that everybody can see him. But also, it's smart because he's being helped with natural acoustics. Because when he teaches, that his voice bounces off the water to the shore where the people are. And they're waiting ears. To get this kind of crowd on the seashore in the morning... Uh, and, and to need to get this creative to communicate to them is a sign that he's becoming a rabbi worth following. So those are the five things. That's the, those are little kind of context things in this passage that are going to help us in our application. So what is Jesus' invitation as we step into the shoes of Peter? Who's our avatar? I have a couple of invitations, um, and, and I'll invite you to prayerfully consider which one of these might be for you this morning. First invitation is this. Recognize how Jesus has been showing you grace. Recognize how Jesus has been showing you grace. Um, I'm struck by the fact that Jesus meets Peter at his greatest desire. Right? What was Peter and Andrew's greatest desire? What did they probably think about most days all day long? getting the biggest catch of fish that they could possibly get, right? This is likely how they determined whether they had a good day or a bad day, how many fish were in the boat. And Jesus shows up for them, and he speaks the language that they will understand, which is a boat full of fish. Jesus does this over and over again in Scripture, by the way. To the Magi, God gives a star. What did they spend all day doing? Looking at the stars in the heavens. To the rich young ruler, he goes straight to the heart and he says, sell everything and come and follow me. To Thomas, a man who was very rational and needed tons of proof, he specifically goes to Thomas and he says, come and touch my hands and my side. Come and see that it's real. See for yourself. He doesn't speak to Peter by a star or a scar or a cursed fig tree. He speaks to Peter by providing him with fish with the catch that he has been waiting for his entire life. Jesus' message and his miracles often, I think, occur in that context because he understands Peter, and he sees Peter, and he knows Peter, and he loves Peter. He gets straight to his heart. If I can just illustrate this and what this might mean for us. Um, I had a great uncle who was a beloved covenant pastor. His name was Quentin Dusty Larson. Dusty was his nickname. We named our firstborn partially after his honor. Um, One of the great stories of my great uncle Dusty was um, his time at a covenant church in uh, a small rural town in Iowa called Pomeroy, Iowa. Uh, He had served for many years up in the UP uh, in Iron River, Michigan. When he moved to, to Pomeroy, Uh, Later in his career, he really struggled to adjust to that lifestyle. He found that he wasn't really reaching the people in the way he wanted to. He wasn't really building relationships. He didn't think that people were really responding super well to his sermons. And as he got to know the church better, he realized how much of his church's life revolved around hog farming. Hog farming. That was the main commerce of that era. might still be, I'm not sure. Um, So he dedicated hours every single week to go and visit his people on the farms. And he worked with them, and he sat with them, and he heard their stories. And he realized that his sermon illustrations were about pine trees and lakes and hunting and snow. Those were for his previous context up in the UP. And so he began to compile hog farming illustrations for his sermons. 
And he began to tell the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that a hog farmer would respond to this. And, and, and this little church in rural Iowa experienced a vibrant awakening and became a thriving outpost for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love that story. And the lesson here is that Jesus cared enough about those farmers in Iowa to send them a pastor who would share the grace of Jesus in a way that they alone would understand. Jesus knew what language Peter understood. And guess what? He knows what language of grace you will understand. He does not come to us and say, hey, sign up and come to my seminar and learn the way that I learn. He comes to us and he speaks our language. He shows up in mighty ways that only we would fully grasp because he knows us and he cares about us and he loves us. What's your great desire? What speaks to your heart the most? My guess is that is how Jesus is, is seeking to come to you and speak to you within those desires. I was discussing this with Joy this week and immediately she said, Jesus knew that I loved stories and I can't tell the story of being called to follow Jesus into ministry without his grace and giving me an opportunity to live into those stories. And, and let me tell you from my standpoint, personally, I, I don't talk about this a ton, but I think that Jesus knew for me to be obedient to him meant to be a pastor in a local church, right? To be a pastor in a local church. And what did he provide me? Somebody who deeply values art and beauty. He provided me with this. That I get to stand here. I get the best view, by the way, of, of everything right here. He provided me with the most beautifully ordered and balanced space where every inch tells a story of his wonder and his glory and his grace. I think he knew, at least as a young pastor, I could not have preached in a black box church. I don't think that would have worked very well. This right here is my sanctuary, is, is my boat full of fish. <laughs> it really is. This is my miraculous gift of God speaking my language. I have not been in a covenant church more beautiful than this sanctuary. Have you considered how Jesus might be meeting you at your great, greatest desire? Have you done that in your life and he's trying to do that in you? If you can't pinpoint what that is, I want you to ask Jesus a simple question. Hey, Jesus, how are you communicating your grace to me right now? Would you reveal that to me? How have you been trying to speak your grace to me? Open my eyes so I can see the ways in which you've been communicating uniquely to me because you love me and you care about me and you know me. It's important to note Peter's response to that act of grace, to that boat full of fish. The text tells us that he fell down at Jesus' feet in repentance. He says, go away from me, Jesus. I'm a sinful man. That might not be what we would expect, right? We might expect him to go, that was incredible. No, he doesn't do that. He says, I'm a sinful man. To paraphrase, I'm not worthy of this. I'm not worthy of this. And like Peter, once we realize that Jesus sees our deepest desires and knows to speak our language and loves us and calls us, sees us, we are confronted with our own brokenness and sin and unworthiness. We're humbled by that grace. Maybe you're now, even just hearing this, you're becoming aware of how Jesus has met you in really gracious ways. I invite you to fall at his feet, be humble, be broken. That's the correct response. And then here's the amazing thing. When we are humbled and we are awed in this way, 
Jesus does something interesting. He replaces our desires. He says, Peter, you once would dream like nothing better in the world than a catch like this, two boats full of fish. But now you can leave the boats behind and you can leave the nets behind because I'm your desire now. I'm your chief desire. Following me and imitating me and learning the way that I live is now your desire. Uh, I can tell you right now, I could go and preach in a black box. I could. Do you want to know why? Because after years and years of this grace, my desire for Jesus is greater than my desire for anything else. When Jesus says, I'll make you fish for people, he's saying, I'm going to replace the desire that you used to have for fish within your desire to teach like I teach and to get your hooks in people because Peter and the disciples, you're now going to be a new kind of rabbi. You're going to be a new kind of teacher with a teaching that's going to cause the Holy Spirit to be unleashed upon the people. What a grace that is. What a great grace. So that's the first invitation I have for you is to recognize how Jesus has been showing you grace. Maybe you don't identify with that as much. There's a second invitation that I want to put that I know some of you might need to hear, and that's keep pushing out into the water. Maybe some of you are aware of a deep desire that you have that has been clearly unmet at this point as you sit here today. You hear the story of the miraculous catch of fish, and you wonder, why doesn't Jesus do that for me? Why doesn't Jesus do that for me? Maybe you've been praying for years for a wayward child. Maybe you have a deep desire for a reconciled relationship with somebody and it doesn't seem to be getting any better. Maybe you prayed for a physical or emotional or mental illness for years with no substantive change. Maybe you're drowning in debt or you are bleeding money and you are losing hope. Where is your miracle? Why isn't Jesus showing up with a boat full of fish for you? Well, I want to remind you if that's you today, Peter had been out all night casting nets, jumping in and out of the water to retrieve them, and caught nothing. Nothing. He was tired out, he was sore, he was discouraged, and he was empty-handed. He came ashore and he began the laborious efforts of cleaning and mending the nets that had produced nothing for him. That likely took a couple of hours, by the way, to clean and mend those nets. And then Jesus says to him, right when they're done, Push out and let down your nets again. Doesn't Jesus understand that we didn't catch anything at night? And if we didn't catch anything at night, we're certainly not going to catch anything during the day. Doesn't he understand that if we put our nets out, that we're going to have to clean them again? It took us hours. And for what? Nothing? But how does Peter respond? If you say so, I'll do it say so, I'll do it. Jesus asks a lot of Peter in this moment, I think. And for those of you with holy desires that are unmet, perhaps you feel like he's asking a lot of you too. But I think Jesus' invitation is, push out into the water again. Do it again. Trust me. Keep being faithful. Don't throw in the towel. Push out. I know the nets have been empty. I know you just cleaned them, but something better is coming. Just be faithful. Go back to that well of prayer again. Cast the wider net. This is what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. Long obedience in the same direction. Push out again today. Trust 
that Jesus is with you and he knows you and he loves you. I cannot promise you that the miracle that you, you deeply desire is going to happen, that, that that need is going to be met in the way that you think. We cannot twist Jesus' arm like that. Thank goodness we can't do that. But I can promise you that he will show up if you're faithful to push out again, to cast the net again. He will make his presence known to you. He will comfort you. I don't know which of these invitations maybe speaks to you today. But just as we begin to invite you, just as we began, um, I want to invite you to step into Peter's sandals and to hear the invitation that Jesus has for you. But I also want to just encourage you to respond in the way that Peter responded. What what an amazing gift of faith Peter has in this passage. Can you hear the invitation to push out yet again? I know it's hard, but to, to push out and cast those nets. And can you respond like Peter responded? been at this for so long, Jesus, but if you say so, okay, I'll do it. Or can you recognize the way that God has miraculously revealed himself to you in a language that you uniquely understand because he knows you and cares about you? And if so, can you respond to this grace by saying, I'm not worthy of this. I'm broken. I'm sinful. I'm not worthy. And then the ultimate response, can you leave the boats behind and agree that our desire is no longer a boat full of fish? but it's Jesus himself. These are the invitations that are before us. They're a sign of God's grace and his thoughtful care of us. And it's these invitations that allowed allowed Peter to hear that call to follow Jesus with his life. And I just want to say, there's nothing more important than saying yes to Jesus' call to follow him. So hear those invitations this morning in the way that only Jesus Lord Jesus, we confess the ways in which we often miss your signs of grace. Lord Jesus, we confess the times that we are tired and we don't want to push out into the water again. We don't want to cast those nets that we've just been mending. Lord Jesus, we confess that we often hold on to our boats and our nets when we hear your call so clearly to follow you. Peter, we fall at your feet and we confess that we're sinful and we're broken. We're not worthy of the grace that you provide for us. Through this confession, may we hear your invitation afresh 